Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. On FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Dave Martino. Yes, I am here. <laughs> I just see it. I'm always <laughs> testing. See if you're asleep. You know, I'm not, no, I'm awake. No, I know you're doing something. <laughs> you just woke me up. Yeah, I know what you're doing. You're <laughs> sitting, sitting in the corner drinking whiskey, knitting. That's right. Something, you know, you just you fall asleep. You know. <laughs> but it happens Fals- at your age, right? What's, so right. what's it, yeah. it going to be? You're going to be 59? 59, no, 53. 53. Oh. Wow. Won't Crazy. be long. Arthritis yet? Eight, a little eight, bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Can't get up and down. Yeah, it's, you know. It's tough, you know. Yeah. You're going to have to install an elevator in your in your place, you know, so you can. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was going to say. What, what are those chairs that goes up the uh, stairs? Yeah, and get make sure you get the one that works even when the power's out, because that's something yes. you might need, right? Yeah, I would hate to get stuck. Yeah. So I'm stuck in the middle. Terrible. Can't, can't get to the bathroom. <laughs> Fall on it. I can't get out. Yeah, I need one of those those little buttons that you press. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. now I've got the idea. That's what I'll get you for your birthday. Oh, perfect. I'll sign you up. <laughs> you know. I'll and be the, safe forever. Well, you know, and I thought the clap on, too, right? So you can oh, get yeah. that for, the, for, the, for your lights. That's true. I think they still make those. But see, yeah. now you can, you know, you can just talk to... You know, one of the uh, I don't want to I don't want to say a wake word and yeah you know but you can you can do it like an echo dot or something like that and turn the lights on so yeah I, I guess you clap could. anymore yeah well that's too nostalgic bad. though you yeah. do <laughs> kind of like it well now speaking of nostalgic yeah. we have got a writer here now he's written a lot of books 
and uh, mystery, crime, and all that. And uh, let's just get him in and let's talk about what he's doing. So, Mr. Lawrence Kelter, welcome. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm good. So, it looks like you've been in the world of writing um, mystery and, and and fiction and stuff like that. So, how did that start for you? Like, where did where did you get the uh, notion to go into doing this type of work? Well, you know, I wanted to write for quite some time. I really got into it when I was in college. I had a really cool professor who was encouraging, and, you know, he let me write funny stuff, and he wouldn't punish me for it. And, you know, he planted the seed, so to speak. But it was a, a very, you know, very uh, long, I guess, gestation period, you might call it, um, because I didn't really pick up the um, the typewriter until I was in my 40s. Um, and I've been writing for about 20 years now. So that's kind of kind of a late start. Was there something that happened that may give you kind of the courage, I guess we would say, to actually um, get something published, get people to read it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the initial impetus was that I really was getting bored in my day job. <laughs> <laughs> I was working in the, uh, the apparel industry, and, you know, it, it was, a, you know, a great thing for a, for a long time. But year by year, I started to get more and more disenchanted with it. And, you know, I started, um, I started by picking up a legal pad and a pencil and scribbling all kinds of stuff that I could never read afterwards. And when they came out with the, um, the first portable word processor, I think it was a Smith Corona, and I think it was about as big as a pizza box. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. And I lived on Long Island. I worked in the city. And I would take this pizza box on the train with me every day uh, and squeeze in, make everybody next to me uncomfortable. And um, <laughs> I would write for an hour on the way into Manhattan and write for an hour on the way back to Long Island. And, you know, I was driven to do it. I just really wanted to do it. Um, I didn't feel so much that, um, you know, I wanted people to read my work, but I felt I had a story or, or stories and I wanted to start getting them down. And uh, I developed a discipline. I wrote every day. I wrote through the weekends. I just really wanted to get that, you know, that first book, you know, on that little micro cassette that they gave you with it. Okay, so now you've had a little bit of success in the in the sense of my my cousin Vinny. You've done the uh, a three part a sequel, right, or something? What's what what went on there? I'll take you back. Um, I would say to 2017. I'm in my den. I've got the laptop up and. I'm watching TV at the same time, and I start flipping the channels. You know, you hear those famous words, you know, my biological clock is ticking, and my niece, 30 years old, you know, 30 years old is, you know, already expecting a third kid. And that's it. I'm hooked. As soon as I start hearing the dialect from the movie, I've got to watch it and got to put everything else down. Um, interestingly enough, My Cousin Vinny is the most rewatched movie of all times. So I'm not the only, only sucker who, you know, can't get up from the couch when that comes on. So I'm watching the movie. It's probably I've seen it a dozen times, but I'm laughing just as hard as I did the first time I saw it in the theaters um, over 20 years ago. And when it was done, I said, you know, as a writer, I think the screenwriter would just love to get a little pat on the back. 20 years since the movie was released. I mean, I'm sure people aren't stopping him in the street and saying, hey, you did a good job. So I did a little research. Um, I got his email address. I sent off a note and I figured, you know what? I did my part. I'm not going to hear back from this guy. Um, this is a screenwriter who not only wrote My Cousin Vinny, he also wrote Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, um, arguably two of the funniest movies of all time, uh, at least in my opinion. And um, I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a mid-list novelist. This guy's Hollywood. You know, I'm, I'm kind of dirt beneath his boot. I'm not going to hear back. But within 20 minutes, the guy wrote me back at home. He wrote me back this, you know, detailed email telling me things about the movie I never. I never thought to ask, and nobody would actually know, you know, who he originally wanted to play the role uh, before Joe Pesci was cast. He wanted, believe it or not, his first choice from for Vinny. Um, he saw Vinny uh, more as a um, like a Joe Paluka type, like a big punch drug guy, um, intimidating. You know, um, he never really saw him as as Joe Pesci, and he wanted Andrew Dice Clay to play the role. The studio said no. <laughs> and then he said, okay, well, my second choice is Robert De Niro. And the studio said, no. Um, and this is be a couple of years before um, Analyze This came out. And De Niro hadn't done any comedy up until that point. They said, no, De Niro's not funny. He's scary. We're not going to hire him. And, um, and then they finally got around to Joe Pesci. And, of course, you know, he was, you know, the perfect choice for it. Um, he also told me some other interesting things. Um, for example, the studio wanted to cut Marissa Tomei out of the movie movie halfway through. Uh, they called him in for a meeting, and they said, you know what? We don't think we need her. Why don't you take her best lines and give them to Vinny? 
And he said, no, you can't do that. She's, you know, she's crucial to the movie. You can't do that. And he said, well, then beef up her character or she's gone. And that's that scene that I was talking about before, uh, where she's standing on the porch in her black cat suit and she's stomping her foot and talking about a biological clock. That was written halfway through the filming um, in order to ensure her uh, ensure her part because they were going to cut her out. You know, those are some of the things that came across, you know, initially. And um, emails, uh, one email led to the next. Then we started talking on the phone. And, of course, you know, I asked the question he must have been asked a 100 times is how come there was no sequel? And he said, well, there was. I wrote a sequel. Um, but the studio didn't like it, so they hired somebody to rewrite it. And they didn't like that either, so they dropped the project. And then they came back to him a couple of years later, and they said, let's make a TV show. And, you know, if we all think back to TV writing in the 90s, you know, we're not talking about the quality of stuff you can see on the streaming services today or on network today. You know, it was pretty schlocky. And he said, no, I'm not going to give Vinny and Lisa to a couple of schlock TV writers. And then they dropped that idea as well. He said, but, you know, I've always wanted them to have more of a life. Um, I've always saw them as a modern-day Nick and Nora where – Lisa does the investigation, and then um, and then Joe takes him into court and does the litigation. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to write some of that. And he said, uh, you know, I don't know. Most of today's humor is, is sort of like stoner humor or real, real sweet romantic comedy. I don't, I don't really dig that. And we ended the call, you know. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, he called me up and he said, you know, I read one of your books and you're pretty funny. Um, you want to try it? And of course, I said yes. I mean, I love the movie. I love the characters. And um, I have to say, writing the um, that trilogy was the most fun I've ever had sitting behind a keyboard. Yeah, I guess it would be, you know. Uh, do you kind of live through the characters then? Like when you're, how is it when you're writing? So when you're sitting behind that keyboard and you're you're writing these characters, um, do you experience them in your head and mind? Does it does it run run to you like a movie? And like, what's that situation like for you? Yeah, I'm I'm very visual. Um, particularly with the My Cousin Vinny books. I could see them in my head. I could, you know, I took a context from a movie, and then I would see them speaking my lines. You know, if they were in a restaurant, I pictured them in a restaurant from the movie, and then I tried to see them banging it out in my story. You know, they always had that romantic little cat and mouse game, that little one-upsmanship where they're, you know, trying to get over on each other, but not to be mean, more to, you know, more to play with each other. So I always had that in mind, that they would never, you know, they always, you know, had this wordplay. They were always dueling, but never to hurt one another, really, just to, you know, either have fun or to push a point. Did you have to get permission from the studio to do the My Cousin Vinny books, or did the uh, screenwriter uh, retain all the rights? It was a combination of the two. Um, once we agreed that we wanted to do it, you know, I called my attorney, he called his attorney, then they called the studio, then five attorneys later. <laughs> And they kind of agreement. So, yeah, it was, you know, we, we made our contribution to the American legal system. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the studio was pretty easygoing. You know, they wanted certain conditions and they wanted the right to review and they wanted to, you know, do basic things. But they were never really onerous, never really gave me a hard time. And um, the same was true with the screenwriter. His name is Dale Warner. Um, he's a great guy. He's about my age. Um, and, um, yeah, you know. Once we agreed to do it, and I, I kind of gave him outlines, he kind of gave me free reign to, to sculpt the book the way I wanted to. Um, you know, Ken, you know, he's a 
he's a creative guy. He had some ideas and he threw them at me. But most of the um, most of the story um, is pretty much out of my imagination. Now let's talk about this book, Man Killer. Now you're saying it kind of um, came from your writing with the My Cousin Vinny sequels, right? Yes, that, yes, that's correct. There's a character in the sequel who is the um, who's a gal who's on trial for her life in the second book. Um, she's Vinny's second court case victory, and um, her sister is the main character in Mankiller. And when I finished writing the trilogy, I said, you know, well, what next? You know, this was so much fun for me. I want to do more. So I came up with a very Lisa-like character, and her name is Gina Marie Catati. And she's a Brooklyn PI, and she's sharp-witted and funny and feisty, and she comes from a very devout Sicilian family, and they meet for dinner every Sunday without fail. Nobody, you know, never a case where um, they don't show up for Sunday dinner. It's a tradition. And she's got good old values, and her, her dad is a retired police sergeant. And, you know, she's very, very into right and wrong. You know, and uh, she got a great, uh, great moral compass. Well, and so what's it like um, writing a female lead character? Do, do you have any, uh, how do you get around that? Well, I kind of muddle through it, honestly. Um, no, um, I've been writing female characters for a very long time. My first series and probably my most successful to date is based on a character called Stephanie Chalice. Um, it's a nine book series. And, you know, I, um, you know, at the beginning, it was a bit of a challenge. And I did get some negative feedback at the very beginning. Um, people, you know, writing and saying, you know, this is not a real woman. This is the um, the male embodiment of a the female sexual fantasy. And oh. <laughs> they were right to some extent. But I, I eventually rewrote the uh, the first book and, you know, tamed it down a little bit. And as I wrote the second and the third, she became more of a real living, breathing woman. You know, as um, as I would as I would believe, and um, yeah, I've got a lot of practice. I think if you're observant and you're a student of life, you know, you can write men, you can write women. Um, you know, there are plenty of women out there writing male characters, and plenty of men writing female characters. And it's like any other skill; you just have to work at it and practice at it, and hopefully, eventually, you do a good job at it. Well, you, you mentioned the uh, mandatory Sunday dinner, which is kind of an old Italian thing that uh, I know it used to be done on my dad's side of the family. You had to be there for uh, for Sunday dinner. Uh, do you have experience with that, or do you know if that's still a thing? I'm just curious. Oh, it's still a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you'll see it on social media. I mean, there are groups about, you know, Sicilian and proud of it, and Italian and proud of it, and war. I'm Sicilian and I'm living in New Jersey. There are all kinds of social media groups like that. But, you know, the uh, the crux of it is that my wife is Sicilian. I'm a, you know, a kid from Brooklyn from a, you know, with a Jewish heritage. And for me, Italian food was, you know, spaghetti and George sauce um, or spaghettios out of the can or ravioli out of the can. Um, and that was my experience with, you know, quote unquote, Italian or Sicilian food until I met my wife, and I was invited for Sunday dinner for the first time. And I got there mid-afternoon sometime, and I don't know, it got dark, and I was still sitting at the table, and they were bringing out seconds and leftovers, and I'm still sitting at the table. You know, fortunately at the time, I was a skinny, you know, skinny kid, and I could absorb the calories. 
But over a lifetime, they've taken its soul. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I'm Italian and Jewish, so I'm all confused. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's, you know, that was a thing. It's definitely still a thing. Um, um, I, don't, I couldn't say my wife does it every weekend. You know, I think we're a little bit more, I don't know, progressive than that. But, you know, when the holidays come around, she's, you know, raising meatballs and making brajol and making delicacies, you know, for specific holidays, like for Easter, as an example, she'll make something called a, a pizza rustica, which is a sort of a pie with ricotta and sausage and cheese. And it's, you know, just out of this world. It's a minimum of 8,000 calories a slice. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's definitely still a thing. And You're making me hungry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what is the, um, the 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 basic idea behind the book? Because you're going to be writing. This is book one, so you've kind of got it in your mind that this is going to be a series. So, do you have this kind of outline? Do you kind of have a, an idea of how many books you want to do with this main character and and where you want to go? No, I, I <laughs> I'm at that age where I can't think that far ahead. Um, I can, I know what I want to do for the second book and I've started working on it. Um, but I'll, I'll write them as long as they're fun to write and people enjoy them. You know, as with the, um, the Stephanie Chalice series, uh, that's nine books long and I haven't published one recently, but that's not to say that I wouldn't go back and build a series back up again. If, you know, if I came up with some ideas I like to put across, you know, like I said, this is a fun book. It's not a war and peace. Um, I try to make it as realistic as possible. You know, she is a, a private eye. I really don't like it when, you know, you read things or you watch things on a screen where the police work they do absolutely makes no sense at all. So, you know, I have a lot of experience writing police procedurals and, you know, I try to keep it as realistic as possible. I try to keep the plot very, the plot very, <laughs> the plot, not the plot. I try <laughs> to keep the plot very engrossing with a lot of twists and turns and some red herrings. Um, I try to make it as good a thriller or a mystery as I can, but with interjecting a lot of humor. Well, yeah, you know, it keeps it, keeps it moving. And uh, I guess you've got to be selective of where and when you do the humor. You do. It has to be appropriate. And, you know, I, that's, you know, a tough job for me, you know, going back, editing, where I'm, I say to myself, you know, this is just over the top or... You know, how many jokes can you throw in on a page? And then you, you've got to cut them out. But, you know, the issue is not cutting them out. The issue is, you know, not coming up with good ideas. So if you think you've got a lot of great material, you're way ahead of the game. You can, you know, write a big draft and come back and, and put the scalpel to it and take out what's unnecessary. But with, um, with humor itself, comedy, uh, you know, there seems tends to need to, to be like a timing, I guess, for um, like stand-up comedians. Did you think there's a timing for humor in prose fiction? Is that how you make something uh, kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there was a um, – did you, did you watch the show, The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel? I did not. You did not. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, she was a stand-up comedian, and it, it was based uh, loosely, I believe, on the, on the uh, life of Joan Rivers. And there's a segment in one of the episodes where she's fine-tuning a joke. And you can see over the span of, you know, 60 or 90 seconds how she took the raw joke and changed it and changed it and changed it. And when she finally came up with, you know, the way she really wanted the joke, it had so much more impact than when when she first conceived it. 
And I, you know, I think it's the same thing with writing. Um, the writing, the joke has to be appropriate. You know, um, you don't want it to, you know, the joke to come out of left field where you're in a very tense situation and, you know, somebody, somebody farts or something like that. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, it doesn't work. So you try to make it appropriate to the scene, appropriate to the setting. Um, sometimes you want to use it to relieve tension, um, which I think is a good thing to do when you've got, you know, the reader so wound up that you don't, you know, he's not going to know where to go next. You know, sometimes the levity will, will fix things for, in that situation. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, humor has its place, but it shouldn't be every place. And I have, you know, critiquers um, who read the books before I finish them up. Um, my wife is my first editor, editor-in-chief, and I belong to a small critique group, and they read all my stuff, and, you know, they slap me on the wrist when I'm getting, you know, I get out of control. <laughs> yeah, I, I know all about that. <laughs> <laughs> so... At the end of the day, do you have a subtext or a meaning or is there something underlying the entertainment in the story? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, it might come up organically or it might be planned, but do you, what is it you want the reader to get out of the book? Is it pure entertainment? I would say it's mostly entertainment. You know, I, I, yeah, it's entertainment. Let's call a spade a spade. A spade, a spade. I, want, I want the reader to sit down, you know, whether it's for two or three days or four nights or whatever it takes them to, to read the book. And hopefully, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're going to breeze right through it. I'm not trying to be hody in my books or put in, you know, words that the reader's going to have to go to the dictionary to read to, you know, to figure out. I want them to breeze through it. I want them to be glued to the page. I want them to keep turning pages. And, you know, when they get to the end, I want them to say, yeah, that was a, you know, that was a great experience. I had a lot of fun reading that book. You know, I think there's a lot of good police procedural writers, a lot of good crime writers out there. I like to think I'm pretty good, but possibly what separates me from many of them is, you know, is my sense of humor. Do you, are you are you conscious about the violence and how you write it in the book? Yeah, I'm not a gory writer um, um, or an erotic writer. You won't find, unfortunately for some, you won't find sex on the page. It's a lot of build up an aftermath type of thing. The sex happens, you know, off the page. Uh, and the same thing with the violence, you know, there'll be an attack. Um, but I won't go to great lengths to describe how gory and how horrible um, the body looks or, you know, they may do a horrible thing, but I'll try to present it in a, in a palatable way. I mean, I've read books where they find the body and it's been stabbed and it's been shot and it's been, you know, it's been slashed and hung. And it's like, Come on already, you know, just, just kill, you know, just kill the victim. You know, not every murder is a torture. Um, not every murderer is a psychopath. You know, I think, you know, at, at some point all that, you know, gets unbelievable and turns off the reader. You know, do you really want the reader to say, oh my God, that's disgusting. You know, they stop reading. I got to go get a cup of coffee. I can't get my, my, uh, my mind around this one. That's not what I do. Right, because not not every murder murderer cooks and eats their meat. <laughs> no, Hannibal, they don't. No, I mean you know, there's days that they don't feel like it. I'm just just saying. <laughs> I'm just talking. Well, um, yeah. well, that's crazy. So now, when you're writing this, um, so you you did did you come up in this particular case, like for instance here, did you come up with? your character first and then you decide where you're going to put her and what's going to happen and build the story around her? Or did you have a story and then you 
put her into the story? I always have the character first. Um, the character may need some, some fine tuning and some modification as I go along. But I've got a you know, basic construct of what I want the character to be like. Character to be like, you know, the story. Um, there are a lot of very good writers who have to plan the whole thing out from page one till the very end. You know, Jeffrey Deaver, as, as an example, is a guy who will take months and months to plot his book and fill his office with sticky notes. And you know, and then once he figures he's got to plot it all the way through, he'll go in and fill it in. I don't, I don't work that way. I won't say I'm completely organic. I mean, there are times where I have to go and make a list of things I need to accomplish between where I am and the end of the book. Um, but I like the story to unfold before me. Um, I feel like I want to be surprised. And if I'm not surprised, how can the reader be surprised? Not everything can be scripted, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, in your series books, how do you keep track of continuity? Do you have a series Bible? Do you have tools or a system to keep track of everything? No, I just have a failing memory. <laughs> And, you know, I, I, I really should be a little bit uh, little bit um, tougher on myself and, and maybe do that and make a, a compendium of what this character has done. But I find myself, you know, going back to previous books and rereading them or, or flipping through them um, to check out a, a point before I move forward. Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's one of my failings. I think some people are probably better about it than I am. In fact, I'm sure there are. But, you know, it's worked out pretty well so far. And, you know, I'm, you're always advancing a character. There's always a character arc and a, and a series arc where the character's changing a little bit between the first page and the last page or their life is changing over a course of several books. And, you know, as long as you're moving them along, you know, it's not – I don't find it that difficult. I don't make – I don't think I make too many mistakes. I haven't had people write in and say, hey – you know, you made her a lefty in book three, and now she's a righty. <laughs> that hasn't happened to me so far. So I, I guess I still have enough brain cells to keep it going. I always wonder this. So, he, so you've got this other series that you've written, and you said you had nine books of, of another uh, mystery. Um, what's the difference in, in, the, in the two books? How, how is this one different than your first series? In the first series, which is also a female detective, um, she's... I would say, you know, a bit more professional. She's um, a, pol a police detective in New York City. In order to achieve that rank, you have to have some chops or, you know, as they, they say, you know, she had, had, a, had to make her bones. She has to have street experience and been in a number of situations um, and knows how to deal with them, you know, knows the criminal personality a little bit better. Uh, Gina Katati is a little bit more of a newbie. Um, she knows a lot of lot. Um, she's pretty savvy. But she's young, and she's got a fledgling um, insurance, you know, and, you know um, detective agency investigating a lot of insurance claims. She's learning as she's going, you know. She gets a little bit smarter, you know. She's going to get a little brighter with every every book. And, you know, she stumbles a little bit. And, you know, I kind of like that about her because, you know, I mean, how many Jack Reaches do you need who are going to walk into a diner and tell you, you know, where the murderer stood and how much he weighed and the color of his eyes all, you know, because he, you know, he can intuit it. You know, she's not that intuitive. She's, you know, it's a learning curve for her. And I think that's what makes it fun. She's vulnerable. And she's more realistic. She's more realistic. She's more like me. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said, you know, you take great pains to write realistic police procedure. What about the PIs? Do you need to take liberty with a PI and what the PI can, can't do in real life? You do have to know the ins and outs of that. And I did, you know, quite a bit of research 
I mean, there's a stereotypical con conception of what a PI is, you know, the, you know, back from the old Philip Marlowe days, you know, with a guy sitting behind his desk smoking a cigarette, you know, gulping scotch, and a beautiful, you know, woman walks in and says, you know, my husband's cheating on me. Um, you know, and these detectives will do anything, you know, they'll beat up on people, they'll pay off people. Um, Gina Katati is not that kind of PI. She only um, works or takes her leads from actual law enforcement people or people who have been in the law enforcement business, either in the military or the FBI or in intelligence services. She tries to be as cop-like as she can be, again, within the confines of somebody who hasn't gone to the police academy, um, but she did go to John Jay School of uh, uh, Criminal Justice. So she's, you know, she's got some chops, and, you know, like I said, she's trying to follow the rules. And she's you know, learning in the process. Right. And I think, uh, how do you keep the pace going? I mean, I would imagine that I think one of the things to do is to keep challenging your main character, right? The put her through things and that. And I guess that's kind of how you keep tension on the page. Absolutely. Well, in this book, it starts off, Gina Marie sort of inherited from her dad an absolutely mint 1963 split window Corvette Stingray. And she is, you know, she's a, a gearhead, maybe not to the extent of a, a Lisa Vito, but she knows her cars and she's, you know, been around this car since her dad was a young man and she's helped him clean it and detail it and, you know, and rotate the tires and change carburetors. So she knows her stuff. So she's got this prized Corvette and she lives in this um, freestanding house in Brooklyn with a long, narrow driveway. And normally what she has to do is she's got to back two clunkers out of the way to get the Corvette up the driveway and into the garage located behind the house. But in the opening uh, chapters of the book, she's in a hurry. She stops home for a moment, um, gets tied up with her sister for a little bit. And as she, they're doing what they're doing, the Corvette gets ripped off. Now, this isn't the kind of car that you're going to bring to a chop shop and part it out. This is the kind of car that's going to go to an off offshore you know, collector, a guy who's going to pay major dollars for a very rare car. Um, you know, the car was probably six grand new in 1963, but today it's worth a quarter of a million dollars. Um, and she gets some leads and she finds a um, a mobster, if you will. Not so much a mobster, but, you know, a little gangster type who's got this huge warehouse and he's, you know, he's having people steal Bentleys and Rolls Royce and Lamborghinis and he's shipping them to Venezuela and all over the world where he can get prime dollar for it. And, you know, she kind of sort of recovers her Corvette, but runs afoul of this, this you know, this um, this thug. And that's when she starts getting into trouble. He does, you know, he says, I want the Corvette back or I want the money for it. And if you can't, then he, didn't, you know, I don't want to tell you all the ins and outs or um, give, you a, give you spoilers. But she gets in one tough situation after the next. And he keeps throwing things in her, you know, in her way that keep her from, you know, getting even or getting ahead. And, you know, there were a lot of side characters and side plots that kind of, you know, pull her in different directions and, you know, they're woven around the main plot line. But, um, you know, it, I think I do a decent job of keeping the, you know, the reader glued and moving forward. Where do you get your, your side characters, your extra characters? Are they, uh, do, you, do you pick up people, uh, people's habits and attitudes and the way they act? in real life, some someone you've seen or, or noticed, or is it all imagination? 
Now, when you say, do I pick up people, are you talking about being a stalker? or? Well, that too. I just thought, you know, if you wanted to get into that, elaborate, I mean, by all means, we'll, we'll listen. We won't tell anyone. Yeah, I'm not on, not on uh, broadcast radio, but, um, you know, I don't think anybody is 100% a person I've seen or met in real life, but more a composite of people that I've met, you know, um, take somebody from one walk of life and give them a bit of a different personality trait or a different appearance or a different job. And, um, you know, then the, uh, the child challenge is to keep that person consistent because, you know, you've got, you know, you don't want to have too many characters, but the characters who are key to the plot, well, they have to stay in character. They have, you know, it's not based on anybody I've actually seen or witnessed. So I have to make sure that they, they keep talking the same talk and, you know, um, behaving in the same way that they, they did early on in the book all the way through. So yeah, it, it's sort of a hybrid, you know, hybrid character is what I would call them. Well, well, speaking of that, can you hear your characters? Do you, do you have an inner monologue uh, when you're writing? Is, is that how you create the dialogue, or do you have another way? They're always talking to me. Sometimes I wish they'd shut up. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, <laughs> after 20 years of writing, I'm not a great sleeper. These people are keeping me up two or three hours a night, you know. It's like, you know what, I'll, I'll tell your story in the morning. Could you let me go to bed? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I can hear my characters. I try to visualize them as best I can. I can definitely hear them and try to picture them in, you know, in the situation I've created, you know, which was, you know, sort of, as I said before, I create these situations where Katati is getting into one problem and into another after another. And, you know, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, every time she takes one step forward, she takes two steps back. I'm creating these scenes or these situations where she's constantly in more and more trouble and, um, you know, these characters are floating in and out of her life. So do these characters tell you what to do? <laughs> tell you what, what you should or shouldn't do? You don't wake up with a shovel in your hand or anything weird, eh? No, I mean, you know, I haven't gotten to the David Berkowitz stage yet. Um, <laughs> Keep working. No, there are no talking dogs. Um, they don't tell me what to do. I pretty much push them around. Or, I, you know, I guess I'm sort of, you know, as a director would be in, in a film, you know, I, here's a setting. This is what you're going to do. And I give him a shove, go out there and do it. I, I think I'm still in charge of the characters. The um, It's not a case where the lunatics are running the asylum yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, so what happens to your character when, when you stop writing? Like uh, like the last series you did, and you're, you're on to a new series now. What happens to your main characters there? Do they just disappear? No, they get quieter and quieter and quieter and... <laughs> until they're not, you know, competing for my attention on a daily basis. Or unless, you know, unless, you know, I've decided the series isn't working and then, you know, I silence them altogether. I, I don't kill them off, but they lose their voices. Um, yeah, so, you know, I've got, after 30 books, I've got, you know, a lot of characters barking at me and you got to have to moderate their, uh, their importance in your head. I was going to say maybe the old you know, detective, and she's fighting with the new one, you know, and mm -hmm. there's a big cat fight here. There may be a time when they cross paths, you know, we'll see. Um, at this moment, I'm still developing Gina, you know. She needs to become more fleshed out and more of a full-fledged PI. Um, but at some point, she may cross paths with Chalisi. They're both in the New York area. So we'll, we'll see. It could be interesting. Yeah, it could be. Wow. Mm -hmm. So listen, um, do you like to interact with readers? Do you have social media? Do you have a website? Um, how, how do you do that? 
Uh, yeah, all that stuff. I have a website, presence on, you know, um, Facebook and Instagram and all those things and book pub and Goodreads. And, you know, that part of it's pretty hard, you know, the, uh, you know, the constant interaction and, and the marketing of the books, it takes up a lot of time. So I enjoy it, but I have to kind of ice it down to, to manageable parcels. And yeah. You'll find most readers, you know, they'll get in touch with you and they'll say something nice or, or tell you you were, you're bad. Oh, my. Crazy. Yeah. Well, let's hopefully we <laughs> get some of those. <laughs> I wrote a I wrote a book some years back, and I went – the initial um, chapters involve a <clears throat> Gulfstream jet coming in from Israel, landing in New York, and it's going to crash. And I went to all kinds of trouble and research. I was listening to – cockpit records um, and reading transcripts and reading about the aircraft. And of course I'm not a pilot, but I thought I did a pretty good job. And one of the first reviews somebody posted on Amazon was you know nothing about the Gulfstream aircraft. <laughs> one of the first reviews. So I wrote back and I said, okay, you know, I thought I did a pretty decent job researching this. I said, but you know, if you're a pilot and you want to help me, Tell me what I did wrong, and I'll go back and I'll I'll edit the book and I'll change it to make it correct. And his response was, "Nah, cool now." Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Says it all. And he had me all freaked out. You know, it's like, oh, you know, he's calling me on the carpet, and I worked so hard to get it right, and now he's, you know, challenging me, you know, on the book page, and now nah, nobody will never know. Don't worry about it. So, okay, so what's your website so we can give it up to people and we'll put it up on ours. It's my full name. It's lawrencekelter.com. No dots, dashes, or hyphens. Just my name. Perfect. And we'll have all that up on the website along with your new book. And, of course, the book's called Man Killer, Gina Katati Pace's Book One. So our guest is the author of that book and many more, Lawrence Kelter. So thank you for being here. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, David. Thanks, Lawrence. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.